Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Those working to preserve and honor an African burial ground in the D.C. area say that time is running out to save it as new construction has desecrated the site. And so up and down Ribbon Road, you have what is called breeding farms, where little black girls were being forced, were being sold into sexual slavery around the age of eight, nine years old. A lot of those remains of little African girls will be found in Moses African Cemetery. And a month after George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police, monuments to racism and white supremacy continued to be toppled. If you want to name it after somebody, honor the right people, the people who are on the right side of history. But it's your ancestor that the school is named after. So you're holding on to your heritage. But we built this joint for free. And we've done begging you to do what's right. We also speak to journalist John Jeter for this month in media and culture. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. The worldwide campaign to topple statues and monuments to colonialism, slavery, and other aspects of white supremacy came to Washington, D.C. this week. On Monday night, protesters attempted to bring down the bronze statue of Andrew Jackson, which sits at the center of Lafayette Park, squarely in front of the White House. Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, was a slave owner known for brutality, fierce opposition to abolitionists and the murder displacement of thousands of Native Americans from their ancestral lands in the southeastern United States. Often looted of their belongings by white settlers, indigenous people were forced to walk thousands of miles to what was supposed to be forever Indian territory, but is now the state of Oklahoma. Thousands died along the way. Though protesters were not successful in toppling Andrew Jackson's statue, and were met with riot police and pepper spray, they were successful on the night of June 10th, June 19th, in toppling the statue of Albert Pike, a Confederate general associated with the Ku Klux Klan terror group after the Civil War. That statue site is in Northwest D.C., adjacent to the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police Department. At Lafayette Park this week, I spoke to Tracy Redd, an organizer with the Movement for Black Lives, about the focus on these monuments. I find it quite interesting the love that this country has with racist statues and racist institutions as a whole. We saw black officers coming out here pepper spraying and using like agents to remove black protesters that were trying to remove this racist statue of Andrew Jackson. And we had the current president of the United States of America say that this is one of his favorite presidents who openly owned slaves. You know, so if that doesn't tell you like how deeply rooted racism is in this country, I don't know what is. After the Juneteenth toppling of the Albert Pike statue, Trump tweeted out a complaint that the Metropolitan Police did not stop destruction of the monument and has since stated that he wants the statue re-erected. On Tuesday, he announced on Twitter an authorization to arrest anyone caught hurting a commemoration to an armed services member on federal land, even though the government already has that power under the 2003 Veterans Memorial Act. 
It is not clear if Trump believes that the law covers Confederate soldiers and officers who fought against the U.S. military in the Civil War. Also in related news, the D.C. Council Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety passed a budget Thursday that cuts $15 million from the Metropolitan Police Department. The vote occurred after 15,000 people submitted comment for the committee's recent hearing on the budget. The committee also voted to restore a four-year renewable term limit to the chief of police and to restore funding to some public safety programs that were cut by Mayor Muriel Bowser, such as violence intervention and prevention, trauma-informed services for victims of violent crime, and reentry services, including funding for the first year of a three-year pilot housing program for returning citizens. Monica Hopkins, executive director for the ACLU of the District of Columbia, said of the budget, quote, a sincere commitment to overhauling the role of policing in public safety requires urgent action from the entire council to finish the work the Judiciary Committee began. This means making greater cuts to MPD's budget and the committee of the whole and reinvesting those dollars in communities by replacing police officers with counselors in schools, expanding funding for mental health programs and substance abuse treatment, ensuring access to quality health care for residents in wards 7 and 8, and investing in safe and affordable housing, end quote. The committee's recommendations now go to the full council for a vote. Eight miles from downtown D.C., activists have been working to honor an historic African burial ground containing remains of the enslaved, and that first generation of freed African people in Maryland. Members of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition see the connections between their years-long struggle to stop desecration at the site to today's global protest movement against racism. This week, they demonstrated for three straight days, starting on Tuesday, June 23rd, at the site on River Road, where there is an excavation that they say is an illegal disturbance of a burial site. As the dozen protesters held up signs facing the busy roadway, they drew car honks of approval. On site was archaeologist Tammy Hilburn, who provides technical expertise to the coalition about the site. I'm a specialist in cultural property crime. I have a background in archaeology and Egyptology. And my, my relation to this, as an archaeologist, I'm horrified. And it, and it disturbs me greatly. As somebody who grew up in a very racist South and saw racism, very brutal racism. I I believe that this is an incorrect thing to be doing in Montgomery County. I moved to Montgomery County, I thought things are better out here. And here I see this, I don't think so. Members of the coalition have filed a stop work order request with Montgomery County. More from this week's protest at the burial site after headlines. In a roundup of other movement-related news, the Poor People's Campaign held its long-planned Mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington on the weekend ending June 21st. Because of COVID-19, the gathering was held online, where 2.5 million people tuned in on Facebook alone. A Senate Republican bill that would 
only provide incentives for police to reform failed to pass on Wednesday, and Trump says he rejects stronger reforms included in the Democrats' bill, so no police reform legislation is likely before the November election. The Supreme Court said Thursday that those seeking asylum in the U.S. have no right to object in court if their claim is denied. Human rights lawyers say that the court option is especially needed now because the initial asylum claims process has been eviscerated by the Trump administration. And Trump will block entry of foreign workers on H-1B visas for skilled workers and L-1 visas for workers being transferred within a company through the end of the year. The Trump administration says these new restrictions will free up 525,000 jobs for Americans, but companies dispute this claim, saying that the new rule will cost American jobs. And speaking of American jobs... The Trump administration, again, is refusing the type of pandemic aid to the public postal service that has been provided to private businesses and banks. On Tuesday, postal workers held a car caravan protest in D.C., winding around the Capitol as part of a national campaign, including delivering two million signatures to Congress to let legislators know that the American people want the post office funded. Mark Demonstein president of the American Postal Workers Union, said on the Zoom broadcast during the caravan that COVID-19 has cut the Postal Service's income by 30%. The CARES Act at the end of March, this huge $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus package, generated over $500 billion for private corporations. And yet the post office got nothing. The post office that belongs to all of us. The post office, when we provide funds for is not providing funds for CEOs or shareholders. It's providing funds to the American people to make sure that we have our essential services. So we're at a crossroads. Uh, If the post office runs out of money, everything becomes up for grabs in terms of service. And let's be real. There's there's 600,000 good living wage union jobs. We uh, Good union jobs build stronger communities. We have in the post office equal pay for equal work. Think about that in these times around the fight for racial justice. Equal pay for equal work, no matter who we are, no matter the color of our skin, no matter our gender. All of these things are very, uh, very important aspects of how important the Postal Service is to the people of this country. Postal workers are urging Senate leader Mitch McConnell to allow a vote on the HEROES Act stimulus bill already passed by the House, which will supply needed relief to the post office. And finally, in culture and media, the U.S. Department of Justice announced this week that it is widening its so-called indictment of WikiLeaks editor Julian Assange to include more dubious claims of illegal hacking. And the Department of Justice is also ordering China's largest state-run media outlets, Xinhua News Agency and China Global Television Network, CGTN, to register under a law that treats them as lobbyists working for a foreign entity. International and national topics are also included in this week's History Notes by Thomas O'Rourke. On June 28, 1970, Muhammad Ali, born Cassius Clay in Louisville, Kentucky, faced the U.S. Supreme Court for refusing induction into the U.S. Army in Clay versus the United States. He stated that, in response to a question about his conscientious objector status, 
Quote, I am not going 10,000 miles from here to help murder and kill and burn poor people simply to help continue the domination of white slave masters over the darker people. Later, in a unanimous 8-0 ruling with Thurgood Marshall recusing himself because of previous involvement in the case, the courts reversed Ali's conviction, citing the government's failure to specify the reasons for its refusal to grant conscientious objector status. Having lost four peak athletic years due to losing his boxing licenses from his original conviction for draft of Asian, Ali took on a series of contenders including Joe Frazier, Ken Norton, and George Foreman, culminating in him regaining the heavyweight boxing crown in Kinshasa, Zaire in October 1974. Ali would remain the most famous and celebrated American athlete and cultural hero on the planet until his death at age 74. This is Thomas O'Rourke for On the Ground Radio. Thank you, Thomas. And I have two final notes. The initial memorial services for jazz great Robert Northern, known and loved as Brother Ah, will be held Tuesday, June 30th, 2020 at 1230 p.m. for visitations until 2.30 p.m. at J.B. Jenkins Funeral Home, 7474 Landover Road, Hyattsville, Maryland. Masks are mandatory to enter the facility. This will be held for those interested in paying their respects in person while keeping the visitors at a safe distance. The visitors will be allowed to enter, pay last respects, and exit. The actual celebration of his life service will be restricted to 25 people, including the immediate and extended family and those in the program only. A larger memorial service will be held at a later date to be determined when it is safe for larger gatherings. This memorial service will be live-streamed in real time on the J.R. Jenkins Funeral Home website through Zoom. You can register with the Funeral Home for the live-stream viewing link by calling 301-322-2300. Or you can tune in on the Facebook pages for WPFW Radio or Brother Ah to watch that Zoom broadcast. And I don't want June to end without mentioning that five years ago, in June, a 21-year-old self-proclaimed white supremacist killed nine people assembled for Bible study at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. The Emanuel Nine, as they are known, ranged in age from 41-year-old pastor and state senator Clementa Pinckney to 87-year-old choir member Susie Jackson. A few days later, hundreds gathered at the Civil War Memorial on U Street here in Northwest D.C., where SNCC veteran Joyce Ladner was among those who spoke. Clementa Pinckney, Cynthia Hurd, Tawanza Sanders, Sharonda Singleton, Mara Thompson, Ethel Lance, Ethel Lance. Susie, Jackson. Susie Jackson, Daniel Simmons Jr., Daniel Simmons, Jr. Dwayne, Doctor. Dwayne Doctor, Medgar Evers, Clyde Kennard, Vernon Damer. The last three were men that I worked with when I was a student in, in SNCC. 
Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That was a long time ago. 52 years ago, I went to the funeral of the four little girls in Birmingham. And I was reminded of that when I heard about the bombing of the church. I wasn't too surprised in a way because with my history, there were more churches burned in, say, in the summer of 64, over 20. Churches were burned and bombed all over the South routinely because those were the only independent institutions we had where civil rights gatherings could occur. I applaud all of you being out here and that you, your generation, has found your own voices as activists. Remembrances were held for the Emanuel Nine in Charleston and throughout South Carolina this month. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Never would have made it. Never could have made it without you. I would have lost it all. But now I see how you were there for me. And I can say. Never would have made it Never could have made it Without you I would have lost it all But now I see how you were there for me And I can say I'm stronger I'm wiser I'm better, much better When I look back over all you brought me through I can see that you were the one I held on to And I never, never would have made it oh, Hello everybody, I wanted just to thank everybody for coming out today Behind me uh, you'll see R.W. Murray Company. That is the company that is desecrating this African burial ground. Yesterday when we were here, they were actually in the process of desecration, and they had actually concrete trucks out here because they're beginning to pour concrete in the burial site. So we really don't have any time to waste anymore. As you know, we were asked to sequester during COVID. And so we went home and we were locking our doors and making sure we didn't come out. But Montgomery County gave construction companies the right to continue to, uh, to construct and continue to build during the COVID crisis. So while we were at home and we couldn't protest, they were out here digging up our ancestors' remains. So, before, so at the end of this struggle, we're gonna go to the parking lot right over here at McDonald's and you'll be able to look into uh, the construction site and you will be able to see pieces of pottery. You'll be able to see very dark patches of soil which we think are biomass. Those are human beings. You'll be able to see a lot from this parking lot. Now there was a sweetheart deal between the planning department and the private company. The planning department decided to give this private company what they call self-policing rights. 
which means that they've left it up to a, a private business to report whether or not they find human remains. And the private business, of course, knows. The private business, you know, they know that if they report that they found human remains, the county has to come in and shut them down. So there's almost a zero chance that the private company is going to do this. And so since the private company won't expose them, that means that we have to expose them. That means that we have to those who can no longer speak for themselves. Yeah, I wanted just to give you a little bit of background. Is that this was all tobacco growing area here on which is the reason why the kidnapping took place. Uh, because tobacco is very labor intensive. Uh, it's also very important to know how to grow tobacco. Europeans didn't know how to grow tobacco, which is the reason why they went to Africa to get people who were basically very technologically advanced in terms of agricultural production. And they brought them right here to River Road. Around 1807, this land became fairly unproductive in terms of tobacco production. And so the landowners here had to make a decision. What, else, what other kind of production, what other kind of company could they uh, develop, uh, create that could compete with both cotton as well as sorghum and other kinds of crops that were being grown down south? And what they decided to do was to invest uh, in the exploitation of little African girls. And so up and down River Road, you have what is called breeding farms, where little black girls were being forced, were being sold into sexual slavery around the age of eight, nine years old. A lot of those remains of little African girls will be found in Moses African Cemetery. So this is a women's issue as well. I mean, this is a very important feminist issue as well as an African issue. So we are so grateful that you have all come out here to support and to, and to speak for those who can no longer speak for themselves. We also want to celebrate our culture because at the end of the day, uh, what really tells the lie about what's going on in Moses is our culture. It's our culture. It's our songs. It's our stories. It's, just, it's the kinds of activities that these people would have enjoyed if they had not been forced into such horrible situations. And so today we have Macy O'Kemp, who is an incredible musician, singer, poet. We're going to try to raise our voices for those who no longer can speak, for the ancestors, those who are buried back there. One of my favorite poems which came out of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, which was during the 1920s, was written by a Jamaican immigrant whose name was Claude McKay. He was a militant person, and I think his words speak very poignantly to what we are facing today. Claude McKay wrote, if we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot while around us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mark at our cursed lot, if we must die. Oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. That even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us though dead. Oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave. And for their thousand blows, deal one death blow. 
what though before us lies an open grave? Like men, we'll face the murderous cowardly path, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Come on, sing with me. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, so let it shine for our ancestors. We're going to speak for those who no longer have a voice. But we want their remains to speak so loudly that this desecration will cease and desist. No justice. No justice. No peace. You have been listening to participants in a demonstration on Wednesday, June 24, 2020, to save the historic Moses Cemetery, also known as the African Burial Ground in Bethesda, Maryland. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Stay with us. Mastered economics, cause you took yourself from squalor. Slave. Mastered academics, cause your grace said you were scholar. Slave. Mastered Instagram, cause you can instigate a follow. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Yeah. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Spend it time, I'm on mine, I be minding mine Every time on my grind, I'm just trying to shine Make a dollar, government, they want a dozen dime The petty kind might kill you cause they see you shine I done had to have a talk with myself plenty time Am I a hypocrite cause I know I did plenty This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's expanded episode on culture and media, I'm joined by journalist John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for The Washington Post and author of Flat Broke and the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. Well, John, I have sort of titled this month's expanded media and culture segment, Police, Lies, and Videotape. Because of the crucial role that video and digital media is playing in what we know and what we perceive in our world, on just Thursday, three more police officers, this time in Wilmington, North Carolina, were caught on video, audio, talking about looking forward to a new civil war being started and slaughtering black people. This week, also, the Department of Justice expanded its so-called indictment against WikiLeaks editor Julian Assange. And, you know, as you know, Assange is revered among real journalists, at least for his release of the collateral murder video that exposed U.S. war crimes in Iraq. And I want to mention the video captured by 17-year-old Darnell Frazier of the murder of George Floyd that has 
led us to this momentous worldwide movement against racism. So why don't we get started with your media highlight for the month? What I found really compelling this week, Esther, was a video that went viral of a black activist named Gary Chambers Jr., who rather artfully, I thought, excoriated the Baton Rouge School Board for its refusal to rename predominantly black Robert E. Lee High School uh, in the midst of this conversation, this national conversation that we're having about race and racism in America. Uh, Pay particular attention to his reproach of one white female school board member who can be seen shopping online while this meeting is going on. So I had intended to get up here and talk about how racist Robert E. Lee was, but I'm going to talk about you, Connie, sitting over there shopping while we're talking about Robert E. Lee. This is a picture of you shopping while we're talking about racism and history in this country. Only white members of this board got up while we were up here talking, too, because you don't give a damn, and it's clear. But I'm going to tell you what the slaves, my ancestors, said about Robert E. Lee, since you don't know history, sister. Let me tell you that they said when he got the plantation, after he got off the field where 27,000 people died, at Gettysburg, Connie, Robert E. Lee was a brutal slave master. Not only did when he whooped the slaves, he said, lay it on them hard. After he said, lay it on them hard, he said, put brine on them, sort of burn them. That's what Robert E. Lee did. And you set your arrogant self in here and sit on there shopping while the pain and the hurt of the people of this community is on display. Because you don't give a damn and you should resign. You should have resigned two years ago when you choked a white man in his house. You should have resigned two weeks ago when you got on TV and said foolishness. And you should walk out of here and resign and never come back because you are the example of racism in this community. Now, when do we as Baton Rouge stop being in 1856? If you want to name the building after somebody, how about PBS Pinchback, the first black governor of the state of Louisiana, when he was governor during Reconstruction? You want another name? Oscar Dunn, who was the lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana in the 1860s that gave the right for Darius Landis and Don Collins and, and Evelyn Ware Jackson and Tramiel Howard to get here. You want to name it after somebody from Reconstruction? Name it after the people who fought for abolition of slavery. If you want to name it after somebody, honor the right people, the people who are on the right side of history. But it's your ancestor that the school is named after. So you're holding on to your heritage. But we built this joint for free. And we've done begging you to do what's right. Wow. So that was the video that you just described uh, of the activists at that East Baton Rouge school board meeting, um, excoriating uh, this board member. And I guess there was a picture that he took from his seat before he got up of her shopping. Uh, this member who who walks out actually uh, after he is uh, pointing her out and putting her on blast like that. Right, right. What I really found jarring about this, aside from Mr. Chambers' eloquence and this righteous expression of indignation, this is almost prophecy, right? It's a prophetic voice. And, but what really struck me about this was, when was the last time any of us heard anyone speaking on behalf of the black working class making a public demand on our political class, on capital? And Frankly, 
I don't think, and we could argue about this, but I, I, the last time I can remember, particularly when you think about his testimony in combination with the protests in the streets of ordinary people who have just had enough, when you think about that, in my mind, the last time we've heard such an outburst from the black working class, right, in their own voice, speaking for themselves, was the 92 riots in Los Angeles after the acquittal of the police officers who brutally beat Rodney King. And I think that speaks to that speaks to the failure of the media, right, to report on the most oppressed people in our society, black people, who are what? Traditionally, we know that the most oppressed people are the engines of change. All change comes through the most oppressed people, right? And so either it's the actions of those oppressed people or it's the reaction to those oppressed people. And I think that's very telling that we have not heard from the black working class in any meaningful way for really more than a generation. It's very reflective of what Martin Luther King would say famously, that a riot is the language of the unheard. And so, you know, we're talking about people who have been disappeared from the conversation for more than a generation, from the public conversation. And now, of course, it's bursting at the seams, you know. It's almost too much democracy at once, really, for a system that's not equipped to handle it at this point in time. So <laughs> it's just very interesting to me. I mean, this really this really sort of shows the, the ineptitude of the media. And really, it's, if not a concerted campaign, then certainly an effort born of a lack of black voices, a lack of black journalists, in the media to tell these stories and to say why they're important because this is important. This is the conversation that we've been that we've really put on hold in a in a national way for more than twenty five years. Well, that certainly gives everybody something to think about and to hear if they hadn't already heard that that commentary or speech uh, by Mr. Chambers down in Louisiana. But we're going to go to a break right now. And we'll be right back with more culture and media for this month. Stay with us. My mom paranoid from the police life. Cause the police man might take my life. What's freedom of speech without my rights? When I, I can't, I can't, I can't breathe. How many more sons, how many must die? How many must march with a protest sign? They take my life, take my life, I was unarmed On CNN every day, it's the same song Oh no, they Well, this is On the Grounds, expanded segment on culture and media this week. And I'm Esther Averam here with John Jeter. And so, John, my big media story for this month is a video shot on May 25th by 17-year-old Darnella Frazier, a former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, murdering George Floyd in full view of a crowd. And this crowd was telling him to stop, to take his knee off his neck. And at the same time, this crowd was being told to get back by, I think, Officer Choi, uh, a police officer, you know, armed with a gun, telling the crowd to get back and uh, even uh, telling a first responder, a medic, a paramedic who arrived, who urged them to stop what they were doing. And the police officers also told this first responder to get back and didn't allow her to help. So her video 
capture the moment of George Floyd's death and also the moment of a murder. And shortly after she returned to the scene of the death and she was captured on video. And I think it's the only video I've seen of Darnella Frazier. And that was aired by now this. I posted a video last night and it just went by. Can everybody guess how I feel? I don't know how to feel. This is so sad, bro. This man was literally right here at 5 p.m. yesterday. I'm walking my cousin to the store and I just see him on the ground. I'm like, what is going on? I pull my camera out. This man cannot breathe at all. He's like, please, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And they did not care. They killed this man. And I was like, I was like five feet away. So that's 17-year-old Darnella Frazier. She's the one who captured on video um, George Floyd's murder. And so I thought it was really important to highlight that for my media story of the month because you could say that like so many of these uh, police murders captured on film that if it had not been for her video, the lying report from the police would have stood And, you know, they said that he was restrained and then he died at the hospital. The initial coroner's report would have stood. And the initial coroner's report said that a combination of George Floyd's pre-existing health conditions exacerbated by being, being restrained by the police led to his death, not strangulation or asphyxiation. And so... With the whole country, the whole world seeing that video, we know that he was strangled. We know that regardless of whatever health health conditions he had, he was strangled to death, right? And I'm thinking back on Walter Scott. Like, I, I think back on that video because it's really clear that if that, I think, a young um, Dominican immigrant hadn't taken that video of Walter Scott being shot in the back, that police officer... He would have not been uh, convicted eventually and and, uh, sentenced in that shooting. And so this video taken by this young woman is the reason for the mass uprising in Minneapolis, the uprising across the United States and across the world. You know, it's the reason why Africa urged the U.N. Human Rights Commission Council to hear testimony about uh, George Floyd's murder. And it sparked this whole international reckoning with not only racist policing, but the entire racist past when Europe and Europeans came into contact with Africa and what is now known as the Americas and Asia. So and then finally, I would say as far as policing, that is pushing the movement forward to defend the police because all the other measures put in place since the murder of Trayvon Martin and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement did not work for George Floyd. Like body cameras didn't work for George Floyd. Even being videoed didn't, you know, pose any kind of deterrence for these officers. You know, you see Chauvin at times looking dead into the camera, like, you know, with his hands in his pocket, like, you know, with with what kind of expression on his face? I don't know. And, you know, Minneapolis had a civilian complaint review board, you know, which could be considered as a form of community control of the police. But that didn't stop them. So none of the the measures put in place that have been put in place since Trayvon Martin's death, you know, work for George Floyd. And then finally, 
I would say that in terms of media, just her presence of mind to stay there and capture this document was so impressive to me. And, um, you know, it could be, you know, in my mind, like the Zapruder film, you know, of JFK's murder, you know, because what's happened, what, what happened is that the movement that's been sparked by this is not going to go away. And it's really created a reckoning, this reckoning that we, we all knew had to come at some point as we confront not just police murder, but this entire 500 year history of racism and the confrontation, the, 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 the time when Europe and Europeans came into contact with Africa, the indigenous people of Asia and South and Central America, and what has happened ever since then. So that's my big story. I know you have something to say about that. Well, just briefly, you know, because you said you said it all, really. But the one thing that really struck me about this video uh, and about the use of video, this technology that we have now is this is not invincible in a court of law. Right. Like we know that these videos going back to Rodney King, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll win the case. But what it does do, it does help to build a movement, because if you are on the fence you know, most black people, we know this happens, right? I mean, this is just reinforcing something that we know. But if you're on the fence, if you're a white person who's on the fence, or even some black people who are on the fence, this is irrefutable proof of what goes on, of the racism, of the monstrous racism that exists. And this is the thing I'll, that I'll, I'll end with, Esther. Imagine if we had had this tool for 150 years. Imagine if we had had cell phone technology to take video, uh, you know, irrefutable proof of King Leopold's uh, murderous regime in the Congo. Or if we had had uh, cell phones to record the, and we probably couldn't even watch it because it's so gruesome, but the murder of Mary Turner, the uh, black woman who was, the pregnant black woman who was murdered, uh, eight months pregnant in uh, Georgia, Valdosta, Georgia, in 1918, because she complained, uh, she threatened to file charges against the white mom that had lynched her husband. And right. they, you know, mutilated and murdered her. You know, it doesn't mean that these people would have been convicted or anything like that necessarily, but we might have been able to avoid a hundred years of this kind of bloodshed just because we would have people whose hearts and minds were moved by this sort of irrefutable evidence. You know, you, you're mentioning Mary Turner, and that's like uh, a case that's always like haunted me. And this video is coming out at the same time that the Equal Justice Initiative released a report last week that we mentioned on the show about the Reconstruction period. And they came up with a figure of at least 2,000 lynchings uh, during the Reconstruction period. Um, And that was at a a much higher rate than the 4,000 lynchings between um, 1870 and when their their first report um, uh, ended, uh, like in like the 1950s. And I'm reading the report right now because it's kind of dovetailing with what we're talking about right now in terms of documentation. Um, They say in the report that they believe the number of murders are far more than 2,000, but that's just what they can document. And it also touches on this whole issue that's coming up right now around qualified immunity. I listened to Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts in a program last week talk about how the whole issue of qualified immunity stems from the Reconstruction period because so many police, judges, prosecutors were so intimately involved with the murder of black people and the the impunity 
that was being carried on in terms of the, the terror happening in the South, that a law had to be passed granting the civil rights of black people and ending this qualified immunity. And the fact that over the years or over the century, Police have been able to get back this qualified immunity and the Supreme Court upheld it in a really ridiculous way so that basically police can get away with murder. This time of reckoning means that that qualified immunity must end because basically uh, we receive those rights and we received protection from them having that immunity during this violent period of reconstruction. Yeah, no, I think, you know, we, we, we focus on the media here, but really, and we've, we've said this before, Esther, you know, there was a, an economist in John F. Kennedy's administration who said that welfare, uh, the old, uh, the dole, as we used to know it, was a breakdown of all systems. Well, what we're seeing now in terms of the, the protests on the streets, in terms of the mishandling of the coronavirus, it represents a breakdown of all systems, a failure of all our institutions, none so much as the media. And and the failure to tell these stories, like you tell here on this show very wonderfully, the failure to tell these stories is why we're in this position. We haven't had this we haven't had this reckoning before now because we've not been talking to one another, right? And that's the predicate for all change. So it's really important to understand the media's role in this. This is not coincidental. This is not some sort of strange coincidence. This is very part and parcel of this very real crisis that it doesn't appear that capitalism or our sort of corrupted democracy can handle. Right. And I guess I should just one more thing before we leave this media is that I wanted to mention that in a, a criminal defense attorney in North Carolina, Greg Doucette, has been compiling uh, a, kind of a, a video montage, uh, a repository of all these acts of police violence since George Floyd's killing. So we know protesters here in Washington, D.C., in Minneapolis, um, all over the country have been attacked violently, some even killed by police while protesting. And these are by and large peaceful protesters. You haven't heard about looters arrested. I heard a young white woman arrested for burning down the Wendy's in Atlanta. But the the looters and the people burning things, and they believe many of these acts are by white supremacists and people who are coming in to create violence in a peaceful movement. But I wanted to mention that and then also mention that uh, in terms of the media's complicity and ridiculousness, Obama's former national security advisor, Susan Rice, going on CNN with Wolf Blitzer. So you have to blame him, too, because he's sitting there asking the question and listening to it and putting on the air. Right. And you have to blame CNN. She blames Russia. You know, she says that Russia could be behind this national, international movement against racism, you know, making um, uh, the United States look bad. So this is a black woman, and she's largely responsible for what we have happened in Libya. Now you can go to Libya, and there are open slave markets, you know, black people being sold on slave blocks. And this is a black woman, part of this neoliberal cabal, trying to put our legitimate protest movement about the rage of not only police brutality, but the, the rage of centuries of oppression and racism and, and put it, you know, on Russia or say that they have anything. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I just, I just want to say very quickly, if I can contrast Susan Rice, and if you have to understand Susan Rice and her ilk, Barack Obama and, and Condoleezza Rice and Cory Booker and all these black people who are figureheads who have been hired by the plutocrats to speak for the Gary Chambers Juniors of the world, right? And because the distance has grown between the black working class and this black this, this class of blacks who are assigned to manage our discontent, right? You've got the silliness of this woman, Susan Rice, going on television and saying that Russia is responsible, or at least at least uh, uh, implying that Russia has some hand in the discontent of black communities that have been suffering this, this anti-black violence for a hundred years, more than a hundred years, right? This is silliness. Why do we even have to have this conversation? Well, we don't have to. I just thought that I couldn't end this segment talking about video, talking about media for this month without mentioning that because, you know, I have to have some release valve other than yelling at the TV, right? <laughs> so, uh, so on that note, on that note, on, I was yelling at it too. All right, okay. So, all right, okay. So on that note, we're going to take another brief break and then we're going to come back with our culture segment. Uh, for this month and our best and the worst, even though we probably just covered some of the worst. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My mom paranoid from the police guys. Cause the police man might take my life. What's freedom of speech without my rights? When I, I can't, I can't, I can't breathe. How many more sons, how many must die? How many must march with a protest sign? They take my life, take my life, I was unarmed On CNN every day, it's the same song Oh no, they This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverum, and I am in our extended segment on culture and media this month with journalist John Jeter. And so, John, we talked at length about video, two important videos this week, um, one by 17-year-old Darnella Frazier, who captured George Floyd's murder, and the video in... East Baton Rouge by activist Gary Chambers Jr. But I want to leave our listeners on a lighter note. Well, it might be lighter, but uh, things around uh, culture in this moment. I guess I'll start with the downing of statues of the Confederacy of genocidal killers in the past centuries. So we know that the statue of King Leopold came down. The statues of Christopher Columbus have come down. The big story this week in D.C. was the the attempt to take down the statue 
of President Andrew Jackson uh, in the middle of Lafayette Park, which is in front of the White House. And that move was unsuccessful, but less reported was the very successful removal toppling of the statue of Albert Pike, which sits very near the courts and right next to the headquarters for the Metropolitan Police Department here in D.C. And so a crowd of organizers, activists who had long wanted to take down this statue, uh, toppled it and I think set part of it on fire. Albert Pike was a notorious uh, member of the Ku Klux Klan, former Confederate general. And he was known for his viciousness. One account said that during the conflict, Pike was accused of using native Choctaw Indian warriors to take the scalps of slain Yankee soldiers. So this is a person who who we had a statue honoring him. And of course, since the, the d- destruction of this monument, Trump is asking that the statue be restored. So and we should say that this the toppling of the statue followed years of efforts locally to go through the so-called normal channels to have it removed. And because it sat on federal land, D.C. was unable to remove it. Uh, and so Trump wants it uh, restored. Uh, we'll see how quickly that that happens. But uh, it's it's frightening for right now. Albert Pike is toppled to the ground. So I thought that I would offer that as my bit of uh, first uh, shot salvo at culture for this month. Yeah. So uh, I, I hope, Esther, that the removal of these offensive statues is only the beginning of a much broader conversation. Right was inspired to hear of some NBA players, including the Brooklyn Nets point guard Kyrie Irving, who's African-American, apparently in a conference call with uh, some hundred NBA players about uh, resuming the NBA system, the NBA season in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic, uh, pandemic, raised the question of whether or not players should resume play. Uh, his thought, apparently, was that uh, this might distract from the social movements that are in the streets, from the protests, and from more serious issues. And he didn't want this predominantly black league to sort of entertain white people while there are some very serious matters to be discussed. And he even apparently raised the issue of whether or not the players shouldn't discuss owning their own NBA league, their own professional basketball league, right? Of course, he was... Uh, reprimanded most severely by the sports media, including many African-American pundits, such as uh, our former colleague Mike Wilbon and uh, ESPN and Stephen A. Smith, who you know called him everything but a child of God, uh, and one white reporter whose name I don't recall, uh, or white pundit, sports pundit, said that this idea, while laudable, is unrealistic. Well, you know, I don't know that it's unrealistic for labor to have a discussion about owning the product of their own work. I don't know if that's unrealistic. It is historically, and it's historically been a conversation that the working class has had in this country. We've not had it for many years now, but I don't see any reason why we shouldn't start having it again. So I hope that this uh, toppling of these statues begins us to to rethink not just sort of the symbols of oppression and racism and uh, racial capitalism, but also the substance of it. And so... It gives me some reason to hope. Yeah, I mean, and I know we have to go. We're running out of time. But when you talk about labor, that takes me back to these student athletes. 
Because, you know, these schools right. right now, I'm not sure where the debate is right now or the conversation, but these young athletes, they have to come to some kind of decision soon also. And if they haven't already. So if the students can't come back to campus, you know, why should the athletes have to come back and play? And some of these schools are so uh, wedded and so dependent on that athletic money. We're talking about millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars that yes. we're really going to have to witness to see, you know, how black labor is used to maintain um, what you say is white wealth, but also the wealth of these universities and how they are made to participate in this or not participate in the in the next month or two. All right. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. And if I can just say very quickly, I think this all leads to the central point, which is that, you know, capitalism is out of ideas to solve our problems at this point in time. The media needs to start asking those questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. None of these things are being discussed. They just wanted to do their Trump, Trump, Trumpity Trump. And yeah, he's doing a horrible job. He's a buffoon. (laughs) But it's like Trump, Trump, Trumpity Trump. And not looking at the deeper uh, issues that you just mentioned. uh, Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking with John Jeter, former foreign correspondent for The Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you so much, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Thomas O'Rourke, and to Colin Michael. And thanks to all the people checking out our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, and that's On the Ground W, Esther Averam, on all your podcast platforms. Of course, you can also listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us there as well. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or by supporting us on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. The music we played this hour included Marvin Sapp, Never Would Have Made It, Run the Jewels, Just, The Crossroads, I Can't Breathe, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.